Hi, welcome again to GP Core Content. In this episode, we're going to be talking about strabismus and amblyopia. So just a bit of background first. There's a couple of different types of strabismus. Um, there's use words like esophoria, esotropia, exophoria, exotropia, um, hypertropia, which is different to hypermetropia. Yeah, I know. Uh, and uh, hyperphoria. So what do the terms mean, the naming conventions? So eso is rotated inwards. Exo rotated outwards. Tropia is where you can't get any binocular vision at all, so you have persistent symptoms. Phoria is where you can get binocular vision and fixation when your both eyes are open and you're fixating on an object. Uh, however, when you cover the affected eye, it moves away. And you can kind of see this on the uncovered test. And symptoms in euphoria normally come on when the eye is tired. Hyper means deviated up, and hypo means deviated down. And the description for a hyper in strabismus is hypertropia, which is not to be confused with hypermetropia, which is long-sightedness. Uh, and then you can talk about causes of the strabismus as well, as well uh, which you normally use terms of paretic and non-paretic. So paretic is if you have paralysis of an extraocular muscle, like a sixth cranial nerve palsy. Non-predic is not due to that. And you have some other pattern naming conventions, so comitant and non-comitant. Comitant is where you have this deviation of the same magnitude all the time, and non-comitant, the degree varies with gaze position. Uh, and then just a bit of eye anatomy, you know, because just for fun. Uh, which nerves control the extraocular muscles and which ones do they control? So which nerve controls the lateral rectus muscle? Which nerve controls the superior oblique? And which muscles does the third cranial nerve control? And what are the names of the six muscles around the eye? And which nerves do each of these muscles control? So the names of the muscles are lateral rectus, and that's controlled by cranial nerve 6. Superior oblique, controlled by cranial nerve 4. And the others are medial rectus, superior rectus, inferior rectus, and inferior oblique. And they're controlled by cranial nerve 3. So LR6, SO4, rest 3. And what are the names of the cranial nerves? What's the name for cranial nerve 3? What's the name of cranial nerve 4 and what's the name of cranial nerve 6? So the name of cranial nerve 3 is the oculomotor nerve, cranial nerve 4 is trochlea and cranial nerve 6 is abducens. So in the case today you've got a young boy Billy, he's two years old, brought in by his mum who is concerned that he has a difference in which way his eyes are pointing and that he lifts his head a lot when he's looking at things. He's got a history of premature birth complicated by neonatal jaundice has had a history of mild developmental delay up till now, which is currently under assessment with the paediatrician with no cause found yet. Uh, and antenatal history is only remarkable for mum's smoking during pregnancy, which she continued despite your efforts to help her quit. So what are the key features of history in this case, or strabismus in general? So the key features of history are the history of obvious misalignment, parental concern at the presence of a manifest squint, the kids close one eye in the sunlight, motor skills reduced, 
mainly fine motor tasks. Uh, compensatory head tilt to minimise diplopia and difficulty learning how to read. History in adults, which is a bit different, but um, history in adults will mainly concentrate on things like diplopia, headache, blurry vision and poor depth perception. And the history, you want to ask about history of risk factors, which we'll get into later. So what are the general causes of strabismus? So there's a couple of end-state causes which are caused by the risk factors or you know, associated with the risk factors. So the causes are refractive errors, orbital size discrepancy, extraocular muscle weakness, or innovation or insertion issues over the extraocular muscle, uh, hypertellurism, which is increased distance between the eyes, or hypotellurism, decreased distance between the eyes. And the risk factors are mainly the cause is unknown and half occurs during uh, in children after birth, and that's called congenital strabismus. Other risk factors would be a family history of strabismus or amblyopia, prematurity, maternal smoking, neonatal jaundice, cerebral palsy, craniofacial abnormalities, uh, learning difficulties and syndromes like Down syndrome or Turner syndrome, fetal alcohol syndrome, and serious things like uh, posterior fossa tumour, encephalitis meningitis or MS. And in adults, the risk factors will be traumatic brain injury, Graves' disease, which is a big one in adults. That would be my number one if I was going to talk about adults. Um, risk factors for strabismus. Neurological disorders, of which you know adults can get many, like strokes and trauma, which I guess is the same as traumatic brain injury. So what are the features of examination in strabismus? So features of exam will be an abnormality found on normal routine eye movements. You can do Hirschberg's test, which is the light reflex test. That's where you hold a pen torch an arm's length from the patient and shine in front of the eyes and observe the reflection, which should be central bilaterally, but might be off. Bruckner's test, which is an inspection for red reflex on direct fundoscopy. The cover-uncover test will show you a tropia if one exists. So if the affected eye moves out, then it's an esotropia of that eye as it was too inwards to begin with. So you cover the unaffected eye and see what happens to the affected eye. Cross-cover test for euphoria. So when you cover the affected eye in a foria, the eye with the foria will move back to its normal position after being uncovered. So they look normal, you cover up the affected eye, you take it away and you see that eye move. This uncovers a latent foria with eyes looking normal when fixated. Visual acuity should be measured, hopefully that's normal. In babies you want to examine for presence of completed epicanthic folds. Uh, so an incomplete epicanthic fold medially will cause a pseudo-strabismus, facial asymmetry, ptosis and proptosis. And you can go and do fundoscopy as well. So how do you exclude pseudo-strabismus? So basically you do those tests above and you consider the causes of pseudo-strabismus. 
uh, which is incomplete epicanthic folds or um, larger epicanthic folds in Asian people, people with facial asymmetry, ptosis or proptosis. So just noting that babies can have immature epicanthic folds and that can look strabismusy, if that's a word. So what's the natural history of ocular misalignment in newborns? So the prevalence of ocular misalignment is 75% at one month, 50% at two months, and close to zero at four months. And pathological misalignment can affect 5% of five-year-olds and 3% of 13 to 24-year-olds. The investigations would just basically be referring to ophthalmology um, and there's referral criteria described below. So the criteria for referral of strabismus is that all children with strabismus should be referred to an ophthalmologist. This is in Queensland Health. Behavioural optometry is not indicated as there's no evidence base for this and I don't even know what that is. Acute onset of strabismus requires immediate referral. And in the referral criteria, the things that the ophthalmologists want are VA, uh, and if they're too young, then ascertain where the child can follow and fix, cover test, ocular motility, fundus exam, presence of absence of red and white reflex, pupillary reactions and sizes, and any behavioural issues such as ADHD or autism. So the overall management of esophoria and esotropia so this is where your eyes turn inwards. This is more common in kids, and exo is more common in um, old age people. So esophoria and tropia, the principles of management are to fix refractory abnormalities, uh, referral to ophthalmology. If they're less than eight, basically it needs treating with, um, you know, fixing it to, to prevent amblyopia. Surgery if needed. Uh, and apparently it's best managed with early surgery. You can, the, po the point of surgery, I guess, is to reduce the angle of deviation, not to fix it. Uh, and a temporary measure instead of surgery can be Botox into the rectus muscle. This lasts about four months, but noting it has a wide array of side effects and complications, but it can be used temporarily or if surgery is contraindicated. Uh, and I guess more in adults you can use temporary prisms like a Fresnel prism on a stick and then you can grind that into glasses later on. Uh, in adults you can occlude an eye as well to alleviate the diplopia. So I guess in kids you want to A, fix the problem which is most likely to be um, refractive or uh, congenital uh, and then patching to prevent amblyopia which we'll talk about later as well. So management of exotropia, um, it's more common to see this in older people with presbycusis. Basically, they find it hard to see close up, so they stop using their convergence muscles, which then get weak, which then you get an exophoria or tropia. Mainstays of treatment are orthoptic exercises, um, surgery, uh, fixing any refractory abnormalities, again with those temporary Fresnel prisms, Botox or surgery, uh, and you can also occlude the eye to alleviate any diplopia. What are the complications of strabismus? So some of the complications are amblyopia if they're young enough, like under 8, 
Uh, and then there's a big stigma associated to having a wonky eye. So it causes stigma, mental health, adult mental health problems, um, and employment problems. And I guess one of the complications that might be over or under corrected if you're using surgery or Botox. So moving on to amblyopia. The what's the pathogenesis of amblyopia? So basically, it's the brain suppressing in the in the cortex, suppressing the images from the disordered eye, turning off those neural connections, resulting in cortical blindness in that eye. This can't be corrected after a certain age, which is normally about seven to eight. So apart from strabismus, there's some other causes of amblyopia. And what are they? So the causes of amblyopia include strabismus, refractive error, deprivation, so from cataracts, for example, or toxic causes, so vitamin B deficiency, folate deficiency, or lead poisoning. What's the management of amblyopia? So I guess you want to refer that to ophthalmology, where they would consider treatments like surgery, removing cataracts, correcting refractive errors, uh, and then patching the non-amblyopic eye and making the bad eye do all the work. Um, this is not as effective as I previously thought, so you need to make sure that you're uh, enforcing compliance and monitoring for improvements in visual acuity. Basically, you patch for weeks to months, with most of the improvement obtained in the first six weeks. You also wanted to monitor the healthy eye to prevent amblyopia in that. Um, patching can be done for 1, 6 or 23 hours a day and apparently the results between all three are roughly equivocal. 73% uh, of kids are successfully treated with patching and this drops to 50% after 3 years of age. 25% of kids that you patch will experience recurrence so it's important to monitor for follow up. Another thing you can do instead of patching is use atropine eye drops to blur the good eye and that's often more cosmetically acceptable though you've got the side effects of atropine. So what are the complications of applying eye patches? So I guess eye patching sounds easy but in, in fact it causes a lot of problems in terms of poor compliance, kids don't like them, they want to remove them, so a lot of stigma associated with them. Uh, causing psychological distress uh, and you can also have allergic responses to the patches. Cool, so that's it for strabismus and amblyopia. Um, as always, usual disclaimers apply and this is all original content sourced from the wide range of uh, information available and public exam reports on how KFP exams are made. Thanks a lot for listening and talk to you soon.